You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Podcasting is by Real Smart Media. Our podcasts are available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a keynote lecture from Exploring the Transnational Neighbourhood, Integration, Community and Cohabitation. This conference, which was supported by the UCD Humanities Institute, the Institute of Modern Language Research, School of Advanced Study at the University of London and the Cross Languages Dynamics Project, took place on the 25th and 26th of September 2019 at UCD Humanities Institute. The first keynote, Revisioning Violence in Transnational Paris, the Art of the Street, was given by Gillian Jane from Newcastle University. It's a real honour and it's lovely to be back in Dublin. So just to give you some idea um, of how I'm going to approach the conference theme, it might be useful, first of all, to just situate my more current research, which, as Douglas mentioned, is in the field of urban humanities. Um, and this work is mainly concerned with how visual and material culture mediate conflict in urban environments. It seeks to tease out, therefore, the interrelations between space, visual culture and power, and thus to go some way, some way towards mapping the aesthetics and politics of how human beings make meaningful places in which to live. So at the heart of this work is an aim to theorise Lefebvre's right to the city as an aesthetic question, that is, the right of inhabitants to intervene in their urban environments. And I follow pragmatic philosophical approaches to the question of representation and reality. It posits, therefore, that how and why places and people are made visible, how and in what way marginal communities make themselves visible, are, as the philosopher Jacques Rancière informs us, all questions of spatial justice, or what he terms the distribution of the sensible. So put simply, who is seen and where, what is visible and what is not, are understood to be political questions that require us to examine aesthetics as a key determinant in processes of social exclusion and inclusion and in shaping normative as well as resistive modes of belonging and identification in our transnational neighbourhoods. Put another way, we're interested here not just in what art says, but in what it does and its capacity to become action, something that acts in and on the urban environment. So to address the conference theme, then, I'm going to tease out briefly the complexity of this question posed by what I think is a very provocative theme, um, the provocative kind of pairing of the terms transnational on the one hand and neighbourhood on the other. And then I'm going to move to address that more concretely through some work on street art and its role in reworking the visual imagination of disadvantaged suburban neighbourhoods or banlieues on the northeastern edge of Paris. The neighbourhoods under discussion are Clichy-sous-Bois and Montfermeil, or I'll refer to them as Clichy-Montfermeil because they're so close together geographically. And they're both highly provocative areas in terms of their socio-spatial position within the French hexagon. The particular focus of the paper is on the tension between media and artistic representations of violence. So in a first movement, then, I'll draw a brief background to these sites, to the visual representation of violence during the 2005 riots in these na- that emerged from these neighbourhoods. 
And secondly, to give all of this a little bit of gravitas, I'll unpack Rancière's notion of the sensible for the ways that more generally it might furnish us as a means to grasp the politics of aesthetics, the realities of the visual imagination, and to question the possibilities for resistance. My case study then consists in two exhibitions in Clichy-Montfermeil by one of the world's most well-known practitioners of photography, the Parisian street artist Gier, an artist of Jewish-Tunisian descent who grew up in Montfermeil and whose aesthetic is defined by participatory processes and the artist's signature larger-than-life black-and-white photographs of the human body and, in particular, of the human face. The first exhibition, Portrait of a Generation, takes place from 2004 to 2006, and this was his first major exhibition, and it consists in illegal works. And the second, Chronicles of Clichy Montfermeil, was shown first at France's most prestigious contemporary art museum, the Palais de Tokyo, before being installed as a permanent mural on the road between Clichy-sous-Bois and Montfermeil, and the installation was then opened by the President of France, François Hollande, in March 2017. So thematically then, both exhibitions deploy street art portraiture as a means to confront issues of visibility and violence in the Paris banlieue, albeit in different ways, and given the gap in time between the two exhibitions, with different spatiotemporal conditions. So overall, the central aim, giving shape to the paper then, is to explore how Gier's photographs perform in relation to dominant regimes of visibility that work to construct the imaginative geographies of these suburban spaces. The primary contention is that street art invites relational, situated discussion of the work of art. Because its substrate is the city walls, buildings, public places, it's not easily divorced from its socio-spatial situation. And thus, it can provide an important prism through which to analyse some of the complexities of envisioning and revisioning the transnational neighbourhood. But first, I want to address this issue then of what we mean by the transnational neighbourhood and in what way the conference theme, its combination of terms, provides us with an interesting means to approach contemporary spatialities. So over the past year, I've been wandering doing fieldwork in the Paris suburbs, and I've been thinking a lot about the transnational in terms of what the sociologist John Urey calls mobilities across different scales, and about how to grasp such a thing as the transnational neighbourhood. Because on the one hand, the transnational posits a way of thinking about space that seems to undermine national borders by attesting to mobilities and to the entanglement of lives and things on global or what we call macro levels. However, as arts and humanities scholars, we often approach these larger forces, or what Apadure calls flows, by paying attention to microprocesses, by zooming in on the lives of material objects and cultural representations. So in our way, we begin to understand how these broad transnational flows are indelibly implicated and imprinted on the ordinary, stamped on the objects of our everyday lives, enmeshed in both our own and in the identities of our children, our partners, closest friends, colleagues, neighbours. So there's a productive, critical tension, I think, inherent in the conference theme that allows us to probe the power geometries, what Doreen Massey calls the power geometries at stake in transnational communities, which are characterised to different degrees by distance and difference, but which, as in the etymological definition of neighbourhood, 
live in close spatial proximity or that live in difference together. The transnational neighbourhood in its combination of terms then disturbs common ways of thinking about the transnational and the mobilities of people, goods and ideas that this implies. The theme requires us to attend to the seepage of these mobilities into the everyday fabric of the neighbourhood. And this is to access the effects of what Massey calls power geometries, which she defines as how various mobilities are stitched into the degrees of control certain individuals or groups have or don't have over the time space of globalisation, the broader meshes and structural violence of neoliberalism, of migration, urban planning, accessibility and representation. As the poet, geographer Tim Cresswell reminds us, any kind of mobility is never a simple fact from getting from A to B. It's never a neutral process, which he sums up in the very useful formula, mobility equals movement plus meaning plus power. Likewise, to think in this way about movement is also to transnationalise our conception of the ordinary. The everyday of the neighbourhood, understood in the transnational context, is not something static, not some idyllic, fixed, sedentary pastoral community to which we can return, but rather something that emerges in and through mobilities. And this is significant because it pertains to the ethics of how we manage and whether we have sufficient agency to manage our relationships with each other across what may be a millefeuille, kind of a layered of layered territories that coexist in one site, localised in one neighbourhood and changing across time. So, to come to situate Clichy Montfermeil then, um, with this kind of broader conceptual mesh in mind, I'm going to give some brief background to the historical social position of Clichy Montfermeil and to the ways in which visuality, or the social fact of visibility, is inherently linked to the experience of belonging and exclusion in these neighbourhoods. So since the emergence of critical literature from the post-colonial suburban fringes in France in the early 80s, the question of place in the banlieue has been consistently connected to the question of looking, or with not having l'œil qui faut, with lacking the right kind of eyes with which to see, as Dieth, who is a participant in Gier's 2017 mural, puts it when talking to the newspaper uh, Le Parisien. So Diet's statement emerges from a particular set of historical and cultural circumstances. The towns of Clichy-Montfermeil are communities made up largely of working-class people, many with immigrant backgrounds. Many are either third or fourth generation of Maghrebi descent, or first or second generation from West African and Sub-Saharan African descent. Indeed, in post-colonial globalised France, the, democ- the more general democratisation of culture through education and technology has been profoundly accompanied by new forms of social, economic and spatial inequalities that are most readily tangible on the peripheries of its major cities and in particular on the eastern edges of its global capital. Henri Lefebvre presaged these inequalities in his 1968 work The Right to the City wherein he apprehended the accelerated growth of the banlieue as decisive in the shift from the circumscribed or bounded city to a more generalised urbanism that was focused on planning, on separation, specialisation and mobility. And as Lefebvre later commented in 1985, the banlieue were the spectre of the city and they represented the failure of the French state's urban governance to provide a qualitative urban space that served the working classes. 
So for those unfamiliar with the French context, the term banlieue is highly contested. In the 1950s and 60s, it retained very positive connotations for Parisians who were moving out of overcrowded and dilapidated buildings in the centre of the post-war city. You had Corbusian-style high-rises, larger living spaces, fresh air, light, all mod cons, and all of these symbolised the realisation of the dream of modernity. But by the early 1980s, however, a discursive imaginary of deprivation and delinquency, which was at best patriarchal and at worst rampantly racist, had emerged in the press. Today, the term banlieue tends generally to stand for those high-rise housing estates in disadvantaged suburbs. And despite being subject to intensive urban planning and policing policies, these currently remain highly surveilled but underserved areas in terms of transport and amenities. Thus, Clichy-sous-Bois and its neighbour Montfermeil, for example, we have towns within a 15-mile radius of central Paris that it still takes almost two hours to reach using a combination of regional or metro trains and irregular local bus services. Clichy-sous-Bois currently has two cafes, predominantly frequented by men, which are very intimidating um, as a, a white woman to walk into, or indeed as any woman to walk into, um, and the percentage of young people under 25 is one of the highest in France. Unemployment is at 24%. House prices are half those of neighbouring banlieue. Water has been privatised. And under the current Grand Paris and post-2005 regeneration programmes, demolitions of notorious high-rise blocks, such as the city of La Forestière, mean that people are being relocated to newer low-rises, but very often with higher rents to pay. Clichy-sous-Bois is therefore, economically, one of the poorest towns in France, while being situated in the richest region in Europe, the Ile-de-France. And furthermore, the imaginary of the banlieue, so this is some photos taken this year of the um, regeneration programme that's happening in Clichy. So furthermore, the imaginary of the banlieue is currently undergoing another sea change in light of regeneration and intensive investment in the Grand Paris Express, a new metro line that will link eventually this town to the centre. And here new forms of contestation arrive in terms of targeted gentrification and state investment in rebranding these areas in advance of the 2024 Paris Olympic Games. As President Sarkozy announced in his speech of 2009 when he launched the Grand Paris programme, it was time to, and I quote, do away with the banlieue. So to return to 2017 and to Diet's statement, the first thing to note is that there remains a very clear dichotomy here that pits the periphery against the centre. Her statement sets up a clear divide between nous and on, us and them, a division which refers to decades of media coverage and urban policies which since the 70s have constructed an image of the banlieue as an outsider, abject region, beset with poverty, unemployment, delinquency and more recently religious extremism. In his book Badlands of the Republic, the urban geographer Mustafa Dikech examines the ways in which the banlieue's position within the French spatial imaginary has been defined by urban policy, state discourses and media responses to urban revolt that have, been, that have drawn extensively on a language of threat. Whether this be the threat of the banlieue to national security, to national coherence, or to the French Republican values of secularism and universalism. And in a similar way, 
Diet's statements points to the ethics at the heart of image making, effectively identifying the image of the banlieue as a contested political site, one in which governmental or dominant discursive ways of seeing do wrong to those who inhabit these spaces. Correspondingly, she implicitly recognises the potential for the visual to enact a kind of structural violence that ensures the persistence of inequality in real terms. She posits that images, as ways of seeing, are constitutive. The imaginary of the margin, of the ghetto, of the delinquent, distributes, to borrow Rancierian terms, distributes the role of subjects in society, so that what is, is that which is given to view. So at this point now, strap in, I'm going to um, unpack some of the conceptual tools of Rancière's philosophy, briefly, that underpin this discussion of visuality and consider the potential for street art as an ostensibly interruptive aesthetic object that might disturb dominant regimes of seeing and knowing. So firstly, Rancière's theorisation of the politics of aesthetics contains a significant spatial dimension. He understands aesthetics as organising the range of possibilities for imagining and enacting social power relations in space. In large part, the foundation for Rancière's integration of politics with aesthetics consists in a kind of critical resistance to the givenness of place, a resistance based in connecting established power geometries to questions of visibility. So he says, and I quote, in the end, everything in politics turns on the distribution of spaces. What are these places? How do they function? Why are they there? Who can occupy them? For me, political action always acts upon the social as the litigious distribution of places and roles. It is always a matter of knowing who is qualified to say what a particular place is and what is done in it. And this understanding facilitates a discussion of how particular governmental discourses like neoliberalism and French republicanism, for instance, constitute and normalise their practices through visual regimes. Rancière famously conceives of the normative order through a theoretical expansion of the term police, emphasising the aesthetic aspects of governmentality. Police, for Rancière, is conceived as the spatio-temporal ordering of a system of normative positions. And these maintain the borders for social inclusion and exclusion. For our context, this police order consists in the successive regimes of visuality that have constituted the imagination of the banlieue, where the sensible refers specifically to the arrangement of what he calls sensible evidences, or perceptions that determine the manner and means for participation in the common social world. And to think about this a bit more concretely, the distribution of the sensible is a continuum for ways of knowing and doing in space, and it's made manifest through the construction of built spaces, of neighbourhood, and of the narratives that provide these neighbourhoods with meanings, and the subsequent ways of living in these neighbourhoods, or making do, as Deserta would say, such as street art, which inhabitants enact there, and which together combine to draw the lines between what is visible and invisible, thinkable and unthinkable, sayable and unsayable, equal and unequal, central or peripheral. So importantly... This concept of a distribution resists stasis within power structures. So it implies a kind of a flexible arena within which strategies and techniques of power can be defined. In other words, the borders delimiting these categories for those within and without are dependent on regimes of representation. 
And as such, they're always already unstable. They can change. And it's this idea that permits us, eternal optimist, optimist here, <laughs> to conceive the possibility for meaningful change to occur within the visibility regime as that which contests the normative order. And it's at this juncture, then, that the aesthetic site, art in the urban environment, might enact an interruption of the police order and reconfigure the map of the sensible. And it's here that politics, in the Ranciarian sense of a break, it's, politics for Ranciere is a break with the governmental regime of seeing and knowing, and it's here it emerges. Ranciere's formulation of politics, then, positions aesthetics at the heart of the distribution of roles, places, power, and potentially grants representational practices a deciding part in altering such a distribution and thus in creating a moment where true politics emerges. And he says, politics invents new forms of collective enunciation. It reframes the given by inventing new ways of making sense of the sensible, new configurations between the visible and the vis invisible, between the audible and the inaudible, new distributions of space and time, in short, new bodily capacities. So making the invisible visible, translating noise into speech, are conversions rooted in the aesthetic moment becoming politics, operational in what I see as a kind of interruption that contests normative perceptual boundaries. Politics turns then on a distribution of what is made available for us to sense of what is seen and what can be said about it, around who has the ability to see, and Rancière says, the talent to speak of ways of doing and making. The question here then becomes how and whether art, as a means of making the invisible visible, can perform such a politics, and what that might look like. So, reviewing the rioting body then. So, to put some flesh on the bones of this police order, right, if we turn now to the representation of the suburban events of 2005, and in debates, there's been a lot of scholarship that focuses on the language of, media, of the media and politicians around 2005, um, but the question of the visual image has received a lot less attention. However, a clear visual rhetoric emerges in media coverage in November 2005, when urban revolts broke out in Clichy-sous-Bois following the death of two boys, Buna Traoré and Ziad Bena, who were being chased by the police. So they were electrocuted in an electric station, hiding from the police. The incidents, which were limited at first to clichy montfermeil spread throughout France over the first two weeks of November, with violence erupting in many of the most disadvantaged, disadvantaged banlieues across the country. And in his analysis of the riots and their cause, Slavoj Žižek links these events specifically to the need to be seen, to be recognised. And I quote Žižek, says, the riots, quite, he's quite ostentatious, but the riots were simply a direct effort to gain visibility. A social group which, although part of France and composed of French citizens, saw itself as excluded from the political and social, place, social space proper, wanted to render its presence palpable to the general public. Their actions spoke for them. Like it or not, we're here, no matter how much you pretend not to see us. The message of the outbursts was not that the protesters found their ethnic religious identity threatened by French Republican universalism, but, on the contrary, that they were not included in it, that they found themselves on the other side of the wall, which separates the visible from the invisible part of Republican social space. So it's 
very complex ideas for the French context, which I'm just going to skim over now, but um, for the purposes of my paper. But in 2005, visibility was certainly achieved. But the terms of that achievement and the bank of imagery that ordered the media's presentation of the incidents to France and the rest of the world possessed a specific set of strategic tropes, tropes that worked to construct what I'm going to term the rioting body. Now, this image here is typical of the media's coverage. It shows a number of figures silhouetted against a blazing overturned car. In the foreground, the silhouette of another burnt-out car, behind which stands the central figure, hooded, back turned to the camera and arms in the air. And what is notable is that the silhouette is is featureless, faceless, and in a certain way, de-individualised by the long-range lens. This particular image and these silhouetted writing bodies have become synonymous with urban violence. This same image was reused in reports on rioting in another town, France, Trap, on the 19th of July 2013, and it also illustrated a 2015 article by Jenny Brooks of the Socialist Party of Scotland, which reported on the 2015 terrorist attacks in Paris. In both cases, neither made reference to the original site of the image, And this decontextualisation is significant because it demonstrates the kind of iconicity of the configuration. It's liberated from historical or social context. The image circulates, but in a regime of stability as a coherent visual signifier of urban violence. Furthermore, beyond decontextualisation, there is this de-individualisation that occurs through the photographic representation of the body as was the case with many of the media images around these events. The silhouette here is faceless. And even in cases where bodies were not shot in silhouette, the person very often wore a hood or a makeshift mask which covered the face. The facelessness, to use a term from Deleuze and Guattari's idea of the face as a politics, This facelessness, on the one hand, constitutes a reduction of the human, an abstraction wherein the subhuman can appear. And in the same way, these faceless silhouetted bodies become ideal totems. The rioting body relegates the other to the subhuman in the sense that their individuality is never recognised. Thus, in conventional understandings of the face as a site of communication, the possibility of recognition or reciprocity with the viewer is denied from the outset. So here then we can talk about a media gaze which is predicated upon hierarchical modes of distribution whereby those who are seen are scrutinised but those who look, us, the media, those who look are never made available for scrutiny where the camera performs to abstract and aestheticise violence, distance it from the viewer, preventing the looker's implication in its unfolding, keeps us safe from our implication in in these events. At the same time, The camera's abstraction of the body enables a kind of blankness to emerge. The person is almost creatured, and it's a term from Deleuze and Guattari, faceless, removed from the landscapes of interpersonal identification. So it's against this highly mediatised and spectacularised backdrop that we must read the emergence of Gier as one of the most well-known practitioners of participatory photo graffiti. So for those of you not so familiar with Gier's work, um, I'm going to very briefly introduce him, but many of you will have already seen his uh, large-scale photographs. So Gier has mythologised himself, 
right? Um, with the first chapter of his recent book, Gier, Can Art Change the World?, consisting of a comic strip narrative of the artist entitled Beginnings. He's semi-anonymous. He grew up in Montfermeil, as I said, where he began tagging, so graffiti, first of all, as a teenager. But as with other now-famous writers, Gier states that tagging was about, and I quote, climbing up to rooftops, crawling through tunnels, seeing the city from a different angle to the people on the streets, and then leaving a little mark there. So this statement already kind of gives us an indication as to the importance of finding unorthodox vantage points from which to look at the city. And then this kind of seeing otherwise assumed a new format for Gier in 2001 when he found a Samsung camera. This is almost a legend now. He found a Samsung camera in the train station and he began to document his own graffiti and photocopying those photographs and pasting them um, onto walls before he extended outwards to embrace more, uh, broader community concerns through the use of photography, um, of which the uh, portrait of a generation was the very first one, which I'm going to come to talk about. Some of his um, other projects are really embedded in socio-political community concerns, whether this be the 2006 face-to-face -face project on the separation wall in Israel, his pastings in the Favela in Brazil in the Women Are Heroes project, his more recent installation of 70-foot, one-year-old baby Kikito, which peer, who peers over the Mexican-US border, or indeed his recent film Faces Places with the mother of the new wave, rest in peace, Agnes Varda, um, and that film was nominated last year for an Oscar for Best Documentary. So beyond Gier, both of the works looked at here are consistent with a general artistic shift in the early 2000s towards localised participatory forms of image making, which seemed to contest mass production and the dense visual colonisation of urban environments by corporate advertisers. And with the rise of street art. In the last 15 years or so, street art has insinuated itself into both the spatial and temporal fabrics of cities around the globe. Its haptic bond to the grain of urban architectures means that, more than other art forms, Street art is linked to time in a very tangible way. Its ephemerality and exposure in the street is one of its most potent political attributes. Moreover, its potential for disappearance, its cleansing off or pasting over, as well as its recording via digital photograph and film, imbricate this aesthetic in the mesh of urban memory and or forgetting. We should recognise, therefore, that the rise of street art has gone hand in hand with the rise of digital technologies and the profligate capacity of its audience to record, circulate, comment on and preserve the work beyond either its temporal or geographical neighbourhoods. And all of these qualities pose a challenge to straightforward art historical perspectives that would draw traditional borderlines for art as a kind of eternal or essential exclusive object. In some, street art explodes the mythologies of images as flat, as self-sufficient entities and instead brings into view the image as what John Berger beautifully calls a way of seeing, um, or the social, ethical, and political set of relations which make up the image. In this reading, and in concert with Rancière's aesthetic politics, images are not inert monadic entities, but rather complex relational assemblages. The conditions of street art's existence, its urban substrate, its fusion of the spectacular amidst the ordinary flows of the city, its rampant circulation in network virtual space, 
render visible the interrelationships at stake between the social, the spatial, the political and the aesthetic. So in what way then does Gier's work present a challenge to the visual regime of threat that characterised the media images of Clichy Montfermeil in 2005? And can his aesthetic be identified with the resistive modes that Rancière proposes? So on the one hand, we might read the artist's extensive use of the face as a kind of ludic distortion of the codes of facelessness that proliferated in the mainstream media. On the other hand, it's not enough, according to Deleuze and Guattari, to just refuse facelessness. Because for them, the reinstatement of the face, putting a face on things, can still mean that it falls into categories determined by the dominant visual regime, because certain faces are acceptable and other faces aren't. But the faces in Gier's work, I'd argue, are never really simple or straightforward. So if we take one of his most iconic images, L'Age Bricage, and read this in relation to its socio-spatial context then. Created in 2004, this image constituted the first stage of the illegal exhibition Portrait of a Generation, where the artist took photographs of locals living in the housing estate of Les Bosques, which is in Clichy-Montfermeil. The images were fly-posted on the end walls of blocks of flats, and they remained there for over a year, until an evening in early November 2005 when they appeared on the news in the background of the televised images documenting the riots in that neighbourhood. So in Lage Bricage, we see a tall man who appears at first sight to be holding a machine gun. In the background, a number of young boys stare out at the viewer. At a glance, the composition, the confrontational gaze, seem to confirm media stereotypes of delinquent youth, violence the stone-faced expression of a hostile presence, the facial expressions in the photo and throughout the series are antagonistic, threatening, distorted. The gaze is very often confrontational and aggressive even. And these are the very familiar visual tropes of ghetto, a hostility that holds out the possibility of disintegration, a space of threat to the social fabric of the city and, in the wider French sense, the security of the nation. But a second look, however, forces the viewer to reorganise their way of seeing when we realise that the gun is in fact, of course, a video camera. And here the status of the image shifts and a reflexive space, an alternative assemblage beyond that of the photograph itself comes into view. We do a double take and the presence of the camera heightens the viewer's consciousness of photography as action. And at the same time, this kind of trompe l'oeil of the camera gun undermines any attachment of photography to a kind of utter truthfulness. Instead, I'd argue that the camera gun brings into view the possibility of different levels of truth, appropriating the visual tropes of violence to set up a series of resonances. Firstly, we might read the image as a commentary on the violence of photographic images. The camera gun invites this association, recalling Virilio's theorization of the camera as a vision machine, which perpetrates symbolic violence at the same time as its technologies enable the distancing of actual violence. Gier acknowledges the violence of the camera here, but in this and in later work, we also find the exploration of the face as a means to posit alternative modes of subjectivity, alternative networks of urban existence, through ironic distortion and deliberate play with the codes of the grotesque. And this work of restoration is evident too in the second phase of Portrait of a Generation, which came about after Gier decided to respond to the violence of 2005 
Um, he moved to Clichy in 2006, and along with the filmmaker Laj Lee, who is the man holding the camera in the other image, they initiated together a photographiti project with the community of Libuski. And in this series, the artist asked locals to pose inches away from the camera and to pull exaggerated, threatening faces to mimic what Gier described as their mainstream portrayal as extraterrestrials. So in stark contrast to the wide-angled and long-distant images of the media coverage, these photographs were shot in extreme close-up using the 28mm lens, the full frame kind of bringing us into uncomfortable proximity with the distorted faces of the subjects. Here, aggression is dramatised, it's performed, and the deliberate play-acting at once attributes consciousness and controlled irony to the subject. At the same time, the face's resonance with media images repeats the codes of aggression in order to jam them, to interrupt the transparency of that same code. These images were then posted in well-to-do neighbourhoods in central Paris, so they kind of migrated across this infamous ring road, the Peripherique, which divides the historic centre of Paris from its banlieue. And so they shift again the registers of the image, meaning changing again as it becomes relational. And their irony resonates within the neighbourhoods of the powerful, as well as, the as, well as they, they become relational as well as oppositional, as the banlieue intervenes in the flows of the urban centre. So here the image rather than refusing alterity, kind of sets difference into motion. It forces confrontation with a self-aware, violent other. And the camera gun enables the emergence then of a chain of meta-reflections on the power of the image and on the manner in which those bodies, distant by the media, might make themselves visible and in doing so reframe vision. So to come to the final section of the paper... Uh, I want to turn to look at Gier's latest intervention in response to 2005, which was a large-scale 300-foot mural of 2017 entitled Chronicles of Clichy Montfermeil. The fresco constitutes the combined portrait of 750 residents of Clichy Montfermeil. Their photos were taken against a green screen before being collaged into the series of poses, individual and collective, that make up the mural. So in the same way that the media's rioting bodies form a kind of ghostly resonance defining the resistive politics of portrait of a generation, in this mural too, the image deploys referential tactics as a mean to destabilise meaning. For example, in the image, in the piece, we find references not only to the events of 2005, but the mural also includes reenactments of the portraits of Portrait of a Generation. So in the midst of the crowd, we find the figure of Ladgley again, holding his camera gun, Byron and Christoph mimicking the postures of earlier poses. Reconfiguring the images of this earlier exhibition from 2004 to 2006, the faces are repeated, but they're different. The poses have entered into a kind of cultural memory so that the performance here suggests that once a desire to install the complexity of their message and their visual resistance permanently into the walls of the banlieue. Here in 2017, in a ceremony opened by the President of the French Republic, they suggest the emergence of street art, art as a powerful alternative memory device, and I would suggest that the chain of references extends beyond the artist's own work. 
the large format, the composition, the bodies arranged in very defined postures are reminiscent of the great history paintings of Jacques-Louis David or Poussin, of liberty leading the people, yeah? The old-fashioned fire pumps, the brooms of dustmen, determined faces, eyes skyward, arms reaching upwards, and the bodies piled upright on top of each other. All of these visual references are reminiscent of the representation of the barricades, of those other great violent disturbances that constituted the very birth of the contemporary republic. So in this scenario, Gier's chronicles complicate the narrative of 2005 and suggest the imbrication of these events in the history of French social revolt and their significance, therefore, in terms of the future history of the neighbourhood and its role in the constitution of the nation. And furthermore, there is an integrity here between the mural and its subject matter because it constitutes the urban dissident as a subject, as le peuple, and renders the people, a famous phrase in French culture, and renders dissidents visible as a kind of complicated social action. Effectively, it refuses the invisibility called for by Nicolas Sarkozy in 2005 when he stated that the urban rioters were scum that needed to be erased from view with a carsher pressure hose. Creating an artwork out of the banlieue itself in order to problematise such political visual regimes, the riots are reconfigured for cultural and collective memory to speak to a larger dynamics of severe material conditions, creativity and conscious urban community. The mural activates then a series of visual echoes, resonances that disturb the established visual codes of violence. And in its orchestration of these echoes, the work can be seen to create a kind of memory knot whose chain of visual references ricochet back and forth between images to resist closure. Thus, from the 2004 portraits of an invisible generation, we now witness the permanent inscri inscription of this generation in the Chronicles of the Nation, with Hollande dramatically declaring at the inauguration of the mural, Vous êtes la France, you are France. This is problematic, but I'm not going to go into that here. Um, so the power of street art in this scenario lies then in its initi initiation of an alternative visuality of social and political memory, with the photographer acting not so much as a chronicler for the rest of the world as for the participants of the events of 2005. And this distinction is vital because it refuse, refuses sensationalist abstractions of capitalist media organs. Instead, the image is used to address those of the neighbourhood, those fighting to be seen for themselves. And it's here that the question of integration or whether or not we are simply returned to a version of the one and indivisible French Republic emerges. Indeed, as we've seen, it's very easy to map the ways in which Gier's mural reconfigures the great myths of the Republic. However, and while this is for another paper, I would argue that it's precisely this reconfiguration rather than a mythology, a straightforward mythology that is dominant here. And recalling Rancière again, he says, politics begins when those who were destined to remain in the domestic and invisible territory of work and reproduction, who were prevented from doing anything else, when they take the time that they have not in order to affirm that they belong to a common world. It begins when they make the invisible visible and make what was deemed to be mere noise of suffering bodies heard as a discourse concerning the common of the community. To conclude then, the mural disturbs through its reworking of the riots of urban violence so these events might be viewed as revolutionary acts. Whether or not the state can absorb this revolution and tame it by reference to the 1789 revolution remains to be seen.
Thus, to conclude, location, referentiality, repetition and participation encourage a radial reading of art in the street, inviting us to move beyond fetishistic approaches to aesthetic experience and instead, instead consider the embeddedness of visual systems in the personal, political, everyday and mnemonic experience of the urban commons. In street art, the visual becomes an evidently powerful site for the articulation of ideological struggle, for the fight to be recognised, to participate, or as Raymond Williams puts it, to write oneself into the land. Thank you.